imagine you're uh, you're a group of uh, extraterrestrials and you're flying above this little blue planet that we have, and uh, you're trying to get a readout what the hell is going on down there. Um, and uh, one of the one of the aliens asked the captain, um, "How are they using their land down there on this little blue planet? One of the very few in the universe that actually has life." And the readout is a third of the land is dedicated to chicken feed. It's such a bizarre way of using the only planet that we know of that life can actually exist. That's the voice of Josh Tetrick, co-founder and CEO of San Francisco-based Eat Just Inc. And no, it's not an episode about life beyond this planet, but life on the only planet that really matters, our planet. It's also a chicken or the egg story. But in this instance, the chicken and the egg both come first. What comes next is a plant-based version of the egg. Confused yet? Well, hang in there, because we're talking about one of the most centrally important subjects of our time, food. How we produce, process, and consume it has been something that all of us have taken for granted for decades now. But when you consider, as Josh does, that fully one-third of our arable land is used to produce feed for chickens and livestock, then something is terribly wrong. Eat Just Inc. and a network of like-minded startups are trying to make a difference and hoping to profit at the same time. Poultry is a $230 billion a year business. The market for eggs is slightly smaller at $200 billion. But given that both are among the world's most popular foods, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that by converting just a small percentage of chicken and egg lovers to a plant-based alternative, there's upside for everyone. The consumer, the innovator, the planet, and not to be overlooked, our fine-feathered friend, the chicken. Josh is no stranger to the plant-based protein business. He's been probing away at the problem for more than a decade. But now his company's plant-based egg and lab-cultivated chicken are taking wing. Country regulators are just beginning to approve plant-based meat alternatives, and manufacturing is ramping up. I spoke to Josh about his journey, his company, and what's at stake if we don't innovate our way out of a pending agricultural crisis. Welcome to another edition of Inside Asia. I'm joined this week by Josh Tetrick, founder and CEO of Eat Just Inc. Josh, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you, Steve. So just to get a feel for your journey, how long have you been wrapped up in the world of plant-based startups and what, what first, first drew you to this fast-growing sector? Well, I've been wrapped up in the world of um, uh, food technology and, and approaching food differently for about uh, about nine and a half years. And uh, obviously wrapped up in the world of food since uh, the day that I was born. Um, you know, that that's the one thing that's unique about food compared to transportation and the internet and everything else. Um, we've got to do it if we want to live. So it, uh, it's a bit more personal than maybe some of these other technologies. What moved you? Was it an environmental concern or a health and nutrition issue? Is there, or is it just opportunistic? You found uh, a technology and you assembled a team. How did it come to be? So I met our uh, co-founder, my co-founder, Josh Balk, when I was about 13 years old. And Josh, um, throughout a steady um, series of influencing me day after day, uh, really convinced me to open up my eyes to how animals are treated around the world. And that was step one to recognize that 
the food system that exists all around us every single day that mostly is invisible um, is really causing a lot of harm to other living things. Um, I didn't really do anything about it. I just listened to Josh and acknowledged what he was saying and then pretty much moved on with my life and had some chicken. Um, and then I, uh, I spent uh, a little bit of time in sub-Saharan Africa working for some nonprofits and a little bit of time with the United Nations. And I started to see how um, food isn't just an issue of obesity. It's also an issue of micronutrient deficiency and just flat out uh, malnutrition. Um, and then the third thing that really got me is uh, the frustration that I was feeling when I was working in sub-Saharan Africa. I didn't feel like I was really getting anything done. And I, I read a book when I was there called Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid that talks about how capitalism is a system and it could be used to, to do um, things that we don't believe in, or it could be used to, to do things that really heal the planet uh, and help lift people up. And I, I got really excited about the idea that you could use a system to do something that mattered and um, remembered what Josh was telling me since I was 13 and moved back to uh, the U.S. and my ex-girlfriend had a, a couch that she was kind enough to let me hang out on while I figured this whole thing out, and that was about nine years ago. You know, we're, we're talking about going after large, uh, entrenched industries, uh, you know, the poultry business, uh, the egg production business. I think, you know, to combine, it's something like, you know, $400 billion annually uh, worldwide. Did you discover or were there any issues um, in getting past regulators because of these vested interests? Or is it purely just uh, lack of knowledge or understanding about what you were doing? What, what was your experience? So I'll, t I'll take meat first and then go to egg because they're different, uh, different issues depending on um, which one we're talking about. So for meat, um, one of the reasons Singapore was the first is some of these entrenched interests that you'll find in other places are not found in Singapore. Uh, there's a much more evidence fact-based approach as opposed to thinking about what um, in agribusiness interest in Iowa is going to think about something. Um, so that was, that's, that's nice to see. Um, for egg, it's been a fairly um, straightforward path. We're currently um, selling in China, uh, the U.S., um, expanding to Europe uh, between now and the end of the year. And generally, you know, the, the big agribusiness, whether egg, poultry, or other animal proteins, they've been a combination of um, ambivalent, antagonistic at times, and also uh, friendly. So I'll, I'll start with um, the antagonistic bit, and then I'll go to friendly. So when I first started the company, I thought our primary competitor was any animal protein company, and the folks that work there don't know what they're doing and we should um, make better products and, uh, and beat them. Um, and they necessarily had people that didn't get it. They weren't clear out about what the urgency of the problem uh, is. And we can talk more about that. Um, and we should create better products and again, and, and, uh, and, and win. I think what I've realized since is the problem is even more urgent. Um, but um, there's a reason why they're successful. Um, and it has to do with how many points of distribution they have access to, has to do with the, um, the scale of their manufacturing uh, capacity, 
So what we've decided to do um, is to, in some ways, uh, in many ways, partner with them. So in Europe, for example, our uh, core partner is a poultry company called PHW, who before the end of the year will be manufacturing and distributing just egg. And that price seems odd that one of Europe's largest poultry companies would want to distribute a plant-based egg. But if you sort of peel back the onion in terms of what they want, they want to sell protein to more people in a way that enables their business to grow. If that protein is animal protein, they'll do that. But if they can also do it with plant protein, they'll also do that. Um, in the United States, we partnered with the largest provider of eggs to the food service channels. This is restaurants, big fast food chains, hospitals, um, stadiums. Um, now they're our partner to manufacture and distribute just egg to the food service channel. Uh, so for us, these partnerships allow us to tap into a scale that would take us more years to tap into. It allows those companies to sell a product that they wouldn't have the technology normally to make happen. Um, and I hope the environment and animals and, and our health uh, are, all, are all better off for it. Well, it may not be the best analogy, and you may take issue with this, but it almost feels like the tobacco industry moving into vaping. In other words, it's in, there's an aspect of inevitability. And if that's going to happen, we might as well get on board and at least control it or be close to it um, if the transition uh, is due to take time or take place over time. Is that kind of what they're thinking? Or, or it's just because they had yeah, more, more the logistics and the, the distribution and the other aspects in place, so it just was a faster route to market? Well, yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to what I thought, which was wrong. I mean, I made a, a couple assumptions in the beginning that turned out to be wrong, but probably the most relevant is, you know, I started this company thinking that if you're an executive at a poultry company in Europe, or you're an executive at a, the world's largest processor of eggs, that you are um, narrow-minded, that you are... Um, uncaring about the planet. Um, and you'll, you have an interest in continuing to do what you're doing. That was my fixed mindset. Um, and then what I realized as I, as the company grew up a bit and I had a chance to, you know, not just read about these folks, but have dinner with them, and, you know, meet their kids, um, is that these are business people and they want to be around for another 50 years and they want to make money. And they realize that they need to move with the consumer. And they realize they have a whole bunch of infrastructure that a young company like uh, just like he just doesn't have. Um, and that's where there is an alignment. And it's no different if you look at, you know, General Motors and, um, and their investment in uh, self-driving electric cars like Cruise or Audi's investments in electric cars. You know, is there a bit of motivation to do good for the world year? Yeah, it's there. The bigger motivation is they want to be around. The bigger motivation is they want to sell more damn cars. Um, that's what the dogma is. And that's where there's a, a real natural alignment between companies like ours and some of these big players that uh, I didn't fully appreciate when I started. I, I hear that. That's really interesting. I, 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 to what degree would you say that um, this awakening um, has been accelerated by virtue of uh, alarms around climate change or even the recent COVID crisis? Has that been an additional kick in the butt for, for some of these organizations, regulators included? Uh, or was it going to happen anyway, and it was just uh, the nature of the timing? 
I think the biggest driver is more consumers wanting it. The regulators can say what they want to say and journalists can write that what they want to write. But at the end of the day, real human beings shelling out dollars or yen or euros um, to spend money on things moves companies. And they want to be a part of where that money is going to go. Now, the things that are driving consumers, you mentioned a few of them, right? Increasing awareness of what, when they look outside, is it a little bit hotter today than it was, you know, this time last year? Um, the fact that you have to put on a mask because of this zoonotic disease called caused uh, by um, putting animals in the tiny spaces because of the um, irrationality of our current food system. There's an awareness that opens up a bit more and there's more of an opportunity to talk about what you're doing because the awareness is, is there a little bit more. You know, even nine years ago, if we were talking, Steve, and I told most people, um, our company focuses on making an egg from a plant and making meat where you don't have to kill an animal. The vast majority of people would have thought, I will raise a total of zero dollars for that. <laughs> uh, right? The vast majority of people would have thought, I don't think consumers are into that because they would have said, I know this because they sent this to me. Um, I don't see the consumer demand for, you know, an egg from a plant or a meat or, a, you know, a burger or a chicken that didn't require killing an animal. Can you show me a survey, you know, that shows that? And if I, I didn't take a survey nine years ago, but if I did, uh, they would have been right. Uh, there was no demand for it. But knowing how long these technologies take, you know, you have to invest years ahead of when that demand is going to happen. And, you know, that ends up being the difference sometimes between, you know, companies that end up, you know, really succeeding or a lot of good companies that maybe invested ahead of the demand. There was a, just as a side note, there was a, uh, a talk I was listening to by this guy named Bill Gross, and he was mentioning the, the key elements that make up a successful company. And the most underappreciated element is time. Um, and he used Netflix as an example. And he said, you know, there are a handful of companies before Netflix but they were just a little bit early. They were a little bit before the internet was really, um, was really kicking. Um, and we can't, yeah, we can't be ignorant to the, the, uh, the role of time. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, to look a, a, around, I mean, it, you know, we, we do work in the corporate purpose space uh, and, and a lot of the conversation isn't around, well, you know, doing good to do well, but there's also this idea of, well, I have shareholders. And so profitability and, and profiting and purpose must coexist in order to have the right kind of energy behind it, uh, get the resourcing, get the funding and support for it. Uh, but, but it's really interesting to me that awareness has been rising among consumers to such a degree that they're prepared to to think about chickens being grown mm -hmm. in a lab and consuming it without concern, which is where I want to turn next, Josh, which is I hear that this is good for the world and that the data is, you know, uh, irrefutable, but, but is it good for the human body? Are there concerns at all uh, or anything that, that, you know, that would cause this industry to be uh, knocked back, if you will, if let's say three, four, five years from now, we discover that some manipulation of the cell structure actually has a dilatory effect on the body. Any concerns there? Or do you feel, listen, it's completely overblown. Uh, people should get over it um, and allow this to move forward. 
there's no genetic manipulation. There's no genetic engineering. There's no tweaking of genes through it. Um, it's identify cell nutrients and then manufacture it. Um, we went through a rigorous uh, safety uh, overview with SFA, the regulatory authority in, in Singapore, and after appointing a safety panel and really doing an extensive deep dive on the, on the, um, the safety of the cell and the process, uh, they deemed it to be safe for human consumption. Um, and I'd go a step further um, than just saying um, it is safe. Um, we believe the evidence says that it is safer than conventional meat, primarily because you don't need to use antibiotics. Um, the risk of pathogens like E. coli, salmonella, um, fecal contamination as an example, are not there when you're manufacturing meat in this clean environment. Um, you know, it's important to understand when we think about meat production that 99% of these 67 billion chickens that are killed every single year or the tens of billions of cows that are slaughtered every single year, the tens of billions of pigs that are slaughtered every single year. These are not animals um, that are, you know, being uh, slaughtered in a small scale environment. They're not spending their night tonight under, you know, the stars. They're in large warehouses that are often referred to as factories. Um, and often they're packed body to body. Um, and the companies don't do that because they don't, care about the animals or they don't care about the environment, they do that simply because it's more cost efficient to do it. Um, and all that leads to a host of um, unsafe conditions that make the conventional way of making meat not suitable for a healthy world that we want to build in the future. And just a note, Steve, because you mentioned about investors and, and thinking through that, um, we are very um, intentional before we uh, take in even a, a small check uh, or certainly a large check of telling any investor, and this could be a sovereign wealth fund, um, it could be a, uh, a venture capital firm uh, like those that invest in us in the early days, or a family office. We're intentional about saying, this is who we are. Uh, the mission of the company is to move the food system from the unhealthy place it is to a, to a much healthier spot. In that process, we want to become the number one global egg brand in the world. We want to eventually create a world where this is the, the primary meat that is consumed. Um, and along the way, we might do some things that make you think that we're not taking a step towards profitability. But at the end of the day, we want to be around for more than 100 years. Um, and that means long-term, it means taking more bets, not with safety, but with technology, with scaling. And that kind of company is not for everyone, right? We've had some folks who I've been that blunt with say, uh, maybe the same for me. Uh, and we take that as a good sign, right? You've got to be the kind of investor who gets this, who recognizes that my, the reason I started the company with, with Josh Buck, the co-founder, is not because I'm trying to maximize profitability at every time. It's because we're trying to create this, this large-scale transformative change to animal consumption. Uh, now, we have to be profitable to make that work long-term, but it means sometimes we'll do things along the way that you know, might, uh, might, seem a bit, uh, might seem a bit odd if you're just fixated on profitability alone. 
Yeah, Josh, and I can appreciate that. I mean, I, I just, you know, one misstep or, or health concern uh, could could undermine the entire business and, and everything you've put into it. So I, I see that. I understand that. I guess there's an element of cynicism with me because if you look at, you know, what the large, you know, packaged good companies have gotten away with and the fact that with all the stabilizers and chemicals and, you know, in added ingredients and a masking of, of you know, what is really in this product, it's actually, you know, code name for sugar. Um, there's so much that's gotten through the pipe um, with what should be rigorous processes. Um, it really doesn't instill a lot of confidence in many of us who are out there who are, you know, thinking regulators are protecting our interests, the consumer interests. But in fact, too much is getting through. By extension, um, you know, when you've got new processes and new products coming to market, with all of the attributes which you've so articulately uh, outlined, there still is some concern that something will slip through. Um, you know, I think with Impossible Foods, uh, they, they've come up with a compound, uh, an iron con- uh, compound called, and I don't know if I'll get the pronunciation right, uh, legomob- legomoglin. Is that how you spell? It? Is that how you say it? Uh, an oxygen transport molecule, it's called, and and they really don't quite know within the regulatory bodies what that is, and they're asking for additional information in order to determine if it is, in fact, safe. So there, there does appear to be question marks out there. Um, nobody's, you know, challenging the integrity of companies like yours and others. Um, it, you really create, create a world where companies like, uh, like us want to spend more time in. So we're manufacturing um, meat currently in Singapore. And we're going to be expanding um, our meat capacity through 2021. And we announced that we're going to be investing $120 million in an egg facility, a plant-based egg facility in Singapore also. And we're going to be breaking ground on that facility uh, this year shortly. So we'll be manufacturing our two technologies, um, uh, one for egg and one for meat, uh, both, uh, both in Singapore. And we made that decision because of Singapore is a hub, intellectual property, um, and I just like hanging out in Singapore too. So it's a personal thing too. It's it's interesting because in in some ways, I mean, Asia uh, is both a major global producer and consumer of poultry and eggs. Um, are, are, do you have any concern that your product may be restricted, if only to protect those industries, or do you anticipate a similar situation out in this part of the world as you experienced in the U.S., where ultimately, um, you know, traditional manufacturers or producers of these products are going to get on board, bring it in as uh, a division, if you will, in order to just stay close to in innovation? Well, important to to know that when we're talking about animal protein, whether the chicken egg, chicken, beef, pork, the vast majority of animal protein, which is responsible for more greenhouse gas emissions than all the transportation sources combined, which is responsible for um, an increasing probability of more zoonotic diseases, which is responsible for more than a third of the ice-free land on this planet, the majority of that animal protein is consumed in Asia. Um, we have to keep that in mind. And as uh, a result of that, uh, Asia is the most important region for us to grow in the next 10 years. Um, we, it's the reason why China was the first country outside the U.S. that we launched Just Egg. Uh, we're going to be launching in Korea, Just Egg in Korea, um, this year with a partner, SPC, a major food company. Um, so there are two things driving, um, I think, the acceptance of it in Korea, China, elsewhere. Um, 
One is that demand, all that animal protein being consumed is creating pressure, environmental pressure, zoonotic disease pressure. If you think about, you know, the interests of the Chinese government, um, you know, climate change, accelerating social instability is not exactly the most um, compelling thing. Um, and trying to figure out a way to adjust policy to deal with some of these big challenges that is on the top of the agenda. Um, I think China recently planned uh, banned plastic bags and uh, other single-use plastics in part because of this. Second driver um, is these companies in China, um, in Korea and elsewhere, well, these companies want to make money and they see where consumer demand is growing, is going. Um, Dicos, the third largest fast food chain in China, recently removed the chicken egg and replaced it with uh, just egg in their breakfast sandwiches in their top locations. Um, they're doing this because they, they see where consumer demand is going. So these things are, are even more potent than I think, you know, what some of the entrenched interests might think about it. Um, and I think that's good for society. It's good for the environment. It's good for, it's good for our health. Right, right. I mean, you 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 make a good point. I, I guess my understanding is, uh, uh, you know, in terms of um, uh, land use, agricultural, forestry, farming, um, that makes about about twenty four, twenty five percent of total global emissions. Uh, any anything that can help reduce that is a good thing, particularly as uh, the U.S. and other you know gear up around the the the, prior, the, uh, the Paris Agreement. Um, but but I also you know wonder about just how uh, Asia Pacific markets are going to start to. Um, be able to scale. I mean, to, you know, you, you're talking about lab-produced uh, products. I mean, we're talking about to, to displace or even to cut into a small percentage of that total consumption. Um, you're talking about massive operations, are you not? Yeah, you certainly are. And I think, um, I think it's important to look at. I'm talking to. I'm talking to you on a laptop 20 years ago. Um, there might've been a few laptops, but only really wealthy people had them. Um, and I have a, I'm holding a smartphone in my left hand and folks are driving electric cars out on the street right now. Society changes, right? New technologies come. And if they're worth it, meaning if consumers really want them and they're solving a problem and we can attract capital to them, we build infrastructure. And that takes time and it takes a lot of money. Um, but it's done. It's been done many times before. And um, we think one of the most important problems facing the planet today, and I think China thinks this and Korea, certainly Singapore does, is the, um, the state of the food that we put in our bodies and how it impacts our environment. So it is a lot of hard work. It will require billions of dollars of infrastructure. Um, it's not going to happen just by falling out of the bed in the morning, right? It's going to happen because of a lot of hard work and because of policy changes and because of billions of dollars of allocation of capital. Now, we'll say, Steve, just to kind of you know pull back for a moment. Imagine, um, imagine you're uh, you're a group of uh, extraterrestrials and you're flying above this little blue planet that we have, and uh, you're trying to get a readout what the hell's going on down there. Um, and uh, one of the one of the aliens asked the captain, um, "How are they using their land down there on this little blue planet? One of the very few in the universe that actually has life." And the readout is: a third of the land is dedicated to chicken feed. 
it's such a bizarre way of using the only planet that we know of that life can actually exist. What are they dealing with right now? Well, it seems that a third of the world is wearing masks as they're walking outside, or not a third, two thirds of the world are dealing with. Why? Well, there's a thing called a zoonotic disease that comes from animals and spills over to humans because of things it seems like the humans have done like putting them in tiny cages or stacking them on cages in a wet market. We don't have to, everything that is created our situation right now was a choice. Unfortunately, many of the times that we made the choice, it was underneath the radar. We were oblivious to it. It was just kind of happening. But we can make a different set of choices, right? We can say, let's build a food system that is not accelerating zoonotic diseases anymore by not killing billions of animals, but instead using a single cell. We can make a choice that says we don't need to direct bulldozers to knock down our cherished biodiverse rainforests. Instead, we can leave them up and maybe get food another way. Um, and all these, you know, all these things are just reasons why it's worth it. It's worth the hard work. It's worth the grind. Um, and it's going to take more than one company just to do it, that's for sure. So, so assuming those little green men fly away and we're not at risk of an extraterrestrial invasion, um, it sounds yeah. like blue sky that, you know, we have the opportunity to make these changes. And there doesn't sound to me like there are many reasons not to invest wholeheartedly in this. When you look out 10 or 20 years from now and you think about what lays before you, your company and others who are in the plant-based and cultured meat space, what concerns do you have? What barriers do exist? Um, and, and how do you plan to address them? When I look out uh, 10 years or so, I see my niece, June. She's two now. She's going to be about a year from entering high school. Um, and I want the vast majority of chicken and beef and pork and eggs and other animal proteins um, that she consumes not to require killing a single animal or tearing down a single rainforest. And one of the consequences of that will be um, less zoonotic disease and we'll have taken a big bite out of climate change. And we'll have aligned the food that we put in our body a little bit more with our values. And to make that world happen, um, companies like ours will need to invest billions of dollars to build infrastructure, not just to serve um, members at 1880, uh, but to serve billions of people. We'll need to work with regulators outside Singapore to focus on the transparency and the safety um, and answer hard questions from consumers about why are we offering this kind of meat as opposed to the conventional meat. We'll need to build global brands around it, right? and realize that building a global brand doesn't mean building an American brand only. It means understanding how to build a brand that works in China, in Korea, in India. Uh, that's going to be necessary. Um, and it's going to be necessary to continue to invest in these technologies, right? Today, we can make a really good chicken bite, but we can't make chicken thighs and we cannot make ribeye steaks. Uh, to eventually solve the problem, we need to be able to do that. Um, and that's going to require um, investments and breakthroughs in technology. Um, and it's going to require people who are listening to this right now to start their own companies to compete against us. Right? This is such a big challenge 
this is a multi-generational challenge. Um, and it's one that is really, uh, it's really calling upon us to, to focus our energy. Food is one of those things that it, it connects with so many other things, right? It's not, it's not just an environmental thing. It's not just a food safety and zoonotic disease thing. It's, it's not just a personal health thing. It's not just a values thing. It's, it relates to all of it. And uh, we got to get after it. Yeah. So continue a broad-based consumer demand and scale. And, and, and if you can get those two right, there's nothing else standing in the way, albeit, you know, regulators uh, rapidly approving and getting it to market. Sounds like, uh, I mean, it, it, you've bit off, bit off a lot here, uh, Josh. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's bigger than anything I imagined prior to starting this conversation. And uh, it leaves me wondering, you know, just how quickly we can get there. Because as you rightly point out, uh, the world needs these changes and they need them now. You know, I, uh, I've, I've had a lot of conversations about, about this um, over the past handful of years, and the conversations are always the most meaningful to me are with, uh, with kids. And I, I, um, I talked to this young girl named Kaya. She's 12 years old. She was one of the first four to come to 1880. Um, she's not a member of 1880, but 1880 made an exception for her and her, her classmates. And they were the first four to ever try and pay for meat that didn't require killing an animal. And um, her very first question, and the, kid, the student's very first question is, can we use this to help more? Can we use this to help more animals? And I think the thing that makes me the most optimistic about all this is not our ability to accelerate technology. It's not regulators seeing it. It's not it's not even, you know, more consumers um, in my age bracket, north of 40 changing, but young people like Kaya growing up have a different mindset. Um, they realize that an egg doesn't need to come from an animal. They realize that it doesn't have to be the case that meat needs to require killing another living thing. And um, they're going to be running the world. Um, and um, I think I found that 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 mindset really hopeful. Um, and we just got to make sure we meet them with the right products in the right uh, the right scale to be able to satisfy what what I know they're going to choose. That was my conversation with Josh Tetrick, co-founder and CEO of Food Just Inc., a developer and manufacturer of plant-based and lab-cultured proteins. I have to admit, I entered the conversation a bit skeptical and ready to poke holes in the idea of a guy in a lab coat replacing the farmer in overalls. I'm admittedly biased, and as a food lover from way back, I was thinking, why change something that works? The protein from chicken, eggs, and even meat, for that matter, are nutritious, taste good, and for the most part, remain affordable. I grew up working on my grandparents' farm, and I have nothing but positive associations between farm-raised food and the culinary joys of preparing and consuming it. Not every industry comes with a ready-made marketing and communications plan. Take pillows, for example. You can sell them based on softness and support. What's left is price. And while some pillow salesmen might have more to say than others, a.k.a. Mike Lindell, CEO of MyPillow and erstwhile American insurrectionist, most makers of pillows have a differentiation problem. 
Companies like Eat Just Inc. come bundled with a sales pitch that promises to delight the palate, improve health, stave off disease, reform society, and save the planet just because it can. If it can do all of that, then the actual taste is almost inconsequential. Indeed, the future food industry may be the closest thing we have to a superhero industry, with electric vehicles coming in a close second. Of course, there are always trade-offs. Electric cars may help eliminate carbon emissions over time, but then there's the problem of how to dispose of old batteries and the amount of electricity required to charge the vehicles, which at least for now, comes in large part from coal-fired power plants. Similarly, lab-grown poultry and meat and plant-based food products must be manufactured, and that means tens of billions of dollars in equipment and facilities in hundreds of locations across the globe. And even then, it would barely put a dent in demand for farm-based products. Here's an idea. Stop eating meat. It's a suggestion that sends meat eaters into a tizzy. Listen closely, and you can hear the gnashing of teeth. But what if we did? A quick look at the numbers. The world now produces more than three times the meat it did 50 years ago, or approximately 340 million tons, comprised primarily of poultry, pork, and beef, in that order. As the world has become wealthier, with more than 3 billion people pulled out of poverty, demand for meat, understandably, has risen. In 2018, according to the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, an estimated 69 billion chickens, 1.5 billion pigs, 656 million turkeys, 574 million sheep, 479 million goats, and 302 million cattle were killed for meat production. Feeding those animals, as we learned at the outset of the program, has required us to carve out one-third of the world's arable landmass. If you aren't reeling with some serious concerns at this point, now add into this witch's brew the following. 92% of our global fresh water is used for agriculture, and a disproportionately large percentage of that is used to grow animal feed and maintain animals. Lump in $22 million in chemical fertilizers each year, which have had their own severe implications for the environment, and all of a sudden, I don't feel like eating eggs. How about you? I'm not calling for an overnight moratorium on the livestock industry, but I am suggesting that if we are to meet the needs of all people in the 21st century, behave responsibly, and save our planet, we should be alert to the collective consequences of sticking to our old habits. If nothing else, it's food for thought. Thanks for joining us. If you like what you hear, share our program with friends and colleagues. We're entering our third season with over 170 episodes produced and available to you free of charge. Each week, we plan to introduce a new topic or trend that shows how innovation and corporate purpose can align and profitably. Share our programs however you see fit. And if you don't already subscribe to our newsletter, you can do so by visiting us at www.insideasiaadvisors.com. Is there a topic you want to know more about? Let us know by leaving a message on any of our LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram pages. As always, we thank you for listening. Thank you.